This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Carl Kim heads the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center. It's a federally funded program whose reach includes Pacific coastal communities. Its aim is to help our first responders and emergency managers in natural disasters. Kim spoke with us this morning about the relaunch of a revised coronavirus survey using contact tracing. He tells us he was floored by the initial response to the survey. It drew a whopping 22,000 people. And Kim wants to expand that even further, reaching out across the state. We were quite surprised. We hadn't anticipated that many responses, but I think that's a, that's really a good thing, that people are concerned, that they have information that they want to share, and they also need information as well, too. We rolled the first version out really quickly, and so we made some adjustments um, based upon what we learned from the uh, first version, and that we also realized, too, too that things may have changed since the end of March as well, too. So we are encouraging people to uh, retake the survey. Um, we can we keep track of the time and date when responses come in so we can analyze, you know, potentially repeat visitors to the surveys. It has some improvements to it, some other questions on it. We're also transitioning to look at, in addition to symptoms, self-reported symptoms, self-reported cases. We're also, uh, we have a few questions on the impacts uh, associated with the, with the COVID-19 that are new. And you want to expand your reach. You have now translated this in different languages? Yes, yeah, and that's the, the second version uh, is going to be, because we know that there are some biases in the, in the first version. So we've translated it into Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, and other languages as well, too, because we know that are underrepresented in, in certain groups. And you're also making a push to make sure that residents of the neighbor islands are included in this survey. Yes, and so that's also part of what we're trying to do in this um, in this second version. What do you think is the most significant thing that has occurred since the first survey was rolled out? Various counties have rolled out certain orders <laughs> at different times, you know, the mandatory curfew. Uh, you think the attitudes have changed at all, you know, because you've got the orders about the masks? That is one of the questions that we added to the second version of the questionnaire, whether or not, you know, how often you wear a mask. Uh, that was not on the first version. I think some of the most uh, important findings is that there still is quite a bit of movement and travel. I think our questionnaire found that 13% of the 22,000 people continue to work, and then 31% of the sample still continues to make trips for grocery stores and uh, pharmacies. That's uh, a significant amount of travel um, that uh, continues to occur. So. I think it's important to recognize that in spite of restrictions, there still is a lot of movement. Have you been able to find out if anyone on the survey has tested positive? We asked that question, and uh, we asked the question, do you um, live in the same household as someone who has symptoms or confirmed to have uh, COVID-19? And in our survey, only 2% of 392 of the 22,000 people said that uh, said yes to that question. The vast majority of people in our survey, 98% said, said no to that question. We also asked the question another way, too, in that we list the various symptoms 
and ask, do you have a cough or shortness of breath or a fever? And we found out that 77% uh, reported that they have no symptoms, but 12% reported that they have a cough, 3% shortness of breath, 1% difficulty breathing, and then 1% with a fever. And then an additional 6% reported additional symptoms that could be linked to the coronavirus. You started the survey to get some good data. Uh, you know, I know we've got uh, various groups doing different things, you know, with uh, drive-through testing, but this was just another way to be able to track the movement of the virus in the community. Yes. So what, what we did was we also asked uh, people where they've traveled, the locations of where they live, and places where they suspect the coronavirus to be. And so Part of the work that we're doing right now is analyzing what the community has to say about this, because we think there's a lot of knowledge in the community about this. And how do you reach, I guess, the millennials, the the, the younger uh, residents out there? What's been interesting about this, this has really been a community-based initiative, and various companies and engineering firms and others have stepped forward and have developed apps and other ways of reaching others that we didn't necessarily reach in our questionnaire. So there is an effort called Aloha Trace, where six of the questions that we have on our survey, it's on a phone-based app um, that will hopefully reach other groups that we weren't able to reach. And the plan is to try to bring together this and other sources of data in this kind of community-based effort. Is this the project that's being worked on by AIO Digital? Yes. Yes. And also we're working with the Hawaii Data Collaborative to share information. And this Hawaii Fights COVID group that has come together has been helping to push out information for both our survey as well as the Aloha Trace uh, and other uh, efforts to collect and share community-based information. We just two days ago, downloaded the, the 22,000 records, and we're analyzing that information right now. We had done an earlier analysis of the 11th, of approximately 11,000 cases that we had on uh, April 1. And so we'll let the second round of the survey run for probably 10 more days at least, and then, and then try to do an analysis of, of that data when that comes in. I think it's really important to protect our vulnerable at-risk populations. In our survey, 21% were over 65, and 26% of those who responded said they had uh, chronic uh, medical conditions. And so I think it's really important for those who are healthy, those who are are continuing to work, those who are continuing to go out to ensure that we take all the measures we can to protect these um, vulnerable populations. Is this being shared like nationally? We're working with other researchers who are using similar methodologies for collecting and merging together crowdsourced information, survey data, other types of data that we can use to how do you pull all this together and make sense of uh, what's happening, you know, not just here in Hawaii, but in, in, in other communities as well. So what's really important is to have data. And this really is about um, collecting data, that we need more data. And not just data for the sake of collecting data, data that we can analyze and use to support decision-making. From our perspective right now, it's most important to identify the potential cases potential ways and pathways through which uh, um, the disease can spread 
and then do all that we can to protect those vulnerable populations so they don't end up um, needing additional treatment. I think from my perspective as a, a transportation researcher, we're very much interested in uh, travel behavior. How do people travel? How do they move from one location to another? And then how the disease can potentially spread in that way. In our survey, 5% of the sample traveled from the U.S. continent and about 1% internationally, 4% had neighbor islands travel. And so I think it's important to understand movements into Hawaii, but also throughout Hawaii as, as well. That was Carl Kim of the Pacific Disaster Preparedness Training Center talking about the launch of a revised survey aimed to track the COVID-19 virus spread in our island community. To take part in that survey, you can Google Hawaii Fights COVID or also Aloha Trace. We now turn our attention to the rest of the world. The EU apologizes for not helping Italy sooner. And Japan's prime minister declares a national emergency. And Facebook tries to divert users from misinformation. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Thursday the 16th of April. I'm Alex Ritson. Another huge rise in US unemployment as the death toll mounts. The EU apologises to Italy for its failure to provide rapid assistance at the start of the pandemic. And a Vietnamese businesswoman provides free rice to those affected by COVID-19 from an ATM machine. There's been another sharp rise in U.S. unemployment figures this week, with more than 5 million more people losing their jobs. That takes the total over the last month to a staggering 22 million. Michelle Fleury reports. The record surge in claims is the result of the abrupt shutdown of the country's economy to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Going forward, economists are hopeful that numbers will begin to come down as small businesses get help from the government and as governors discuss how to reopen parts of the country where the virus has peaked. The governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo, has announced that the lockdown there will be extended by a further two weeks to May the 15th. Here in the UK, Dominic Raab, who's deputising for the Prime Minister, has announced that the nationwide lockdown is also extended for a minimum three weeks. Together, united, we must keep up this national effort for a while longer. We've just come too far. We've lost too many loved ones. We've already sacrificed far too much to ease up now. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has declared a nationwide state of emergency as coronavirus infections in Japan continue to climb. There are now close to 500 new cases a day. Mr Abe is also expected to provide one-off cash payments to all Japanese citizens as unemployment grows and the country slips into recession. The head of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, has said Europe owes Italy a heartfelt apology for failing to offer sufficient support at the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic. Italy was the first European country to suffer a serious outbreak and has recorded more death than any other nation by the United States. Addressing the European Parliament, Ms von der Leyen castigated those who wanted to play a blame game. There are still some who want to point fingers and deflect blame, and there are others who would rather talk like populists than tell unpopular truth? To this I say, stop it. Stop and have the courage to tell the truth. Have the courage to stand up for Europe. Because this union of ours will get us through. And it will be as strong tomorrow as we make it today. The Italian Foreign Minister Luigi Di Meo welcomed the apology, describing it as an important act of truth which is good for Europe. 
The Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Löfven has defended his government's strategy of avoiding a coronavirus lockdown. He said keeping schools, shops and pubs open while encouraging social distancing was working. Mr Löfven was speaking after MPs voted in favour of a new law allowing the government to act during the outbreak without consulting Parliament. Facebook has announced that its users will start receiving warnings about fake information and conspiracy theories linked to coronavirus. Its head, Mark Zuckerberg, said messages in the relevant language would be targeted at subscribers who've previously engaged with hoaxes, connecting them instead to accurate data from the World Health Organization or independent fact-checkers. Facebook has been widely criticised for allowing false news to circulate. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has boosted its COVID-19 relief fund to $250 million after Donald Trump announced on Wednesday that the US administration would be ending its funding for the World Health Organization. Speaking to the BBC, Melinda Gates strongly criticised the president's decision. The World Health Organization is exactly the organization to deal with a pandemic, so defunding WHO right now makes zero sense. Singapore has reported its highest daily tally of new cases of COVID-19 as the virus continues to spread among temporary worker dormitories in the small island state. Celia Hatton reports. Last month, Singapore was praised for its efficient response to COVID-19. But now it seems that the measures used to fight the virus among Singapore's comparatively wealthy permanent citizens aren't as effective for its 200,000 temporary workers, who were often forced to live in cramped, unsanitary conditions where social distancing is extremely difficult. And in Vietnam, a female entrepreneur has created an automatic dispensing machine providing free rice for people left without work as a result of the nationwide lockdown to curb the spread of coronavirus. The machine dispenses a one and a half kilo bag from a small silo to waiting workers. You've been listening to the Global News podcast. Do stay safe wherever you are. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at the company behind iconic Hawaii eateries. Spencecliff Corporation was behind more than 50 different restaurants, including Queen Surf, Tahitian Lanai, Coco's, Tiki Tops, Fisherman's Wharf, Senior Popo's, Trader Vic's, Kelly's, South Seas, Ranch House, and more. The name is a mashup of the founding brothers' names, Spencer Weaver and Clifton Weaver. At one time, Spencecliff employed 1,500 people and operated more than 30 restaurants, cabarets, coffee shops, and snack bars in Hawaii, mostly on Oahu. Additional operations in Hawaii included two hotels, three bakeries, and a catering service. While in Tahiti, the company operated two hotels. And in 1948, they opened the Sky Room at Honolulu's airport, then known as John Rogers Field. They also catered the in-flight meals for 10 airlines, including American Airlines, Japan Airlines, Canadian Pacific, Qantas, and Air New Zealand. Prior to that, the brothers had a catering contract to feed personnel at Hickam Air Force Base. 
But it all started because the New Yorkers had traveled to Hawaii on a few visits and decided to move here. They opened a few hot dog carts in 1939 before opening a stand at Enna Road in Ala Moana Boulevard in Waikiki. Today's question is, what was the name of their first hot dog carts? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Updated property listings with photos and select virtual tours at locationshawaii.com. Our reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the prospect of pay cuts and furloughs that loom over government workers. Political and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, kind of a big day for uh, the uh, public uh, sector unions. Well, you and I were talking earlier this week uh, on a story that I did on where's the state going to find the money if uh, GET and income tax and TAT and other revenue plummets, as is expected with coronavirus? Well, uh, the governor, uh, his hand was a little bit forced and that the news leaked before he would have liked it, perhaps. But the governor is admitting that he's going to have to consider pay cuts, perhaps 20 percent uh, for state workers, uh, maybe furloughs. Uh, he did not say that he had decided yet what to do. But, boy, the, the unions uh, and top leaders in the state House and Senate are are saying, look, you got to look for somewhere else. Don't cut workers at this time that they need their money. Look at other things in the state budget as a way to get us through this tough time. Yeah, and I understand this was a meeting of uh, all the union heads. Um, right. Uh, and some of them are pushing back pretty hard. Pretty hard. That would be, in particular, the Hawaii Government Employees Association. That's the, the largest uh, union in the state. Also, the Hawaii State Teachers Association. Uh, the president of that organization had a press release yesterday, excuse me, a press conference as well, saying this is just simply unacceptable. Corey Rosenlee said, look, uh, teachers, if you take a 20% salary cut, that works out to about 600 as much as $800 a month. That's just unacceptable for the teachers union, particularly given that Hawaii already has a tough time attracting teachers uh, to, to work in Hawaii. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we understand that these proposed cuts were for all the unions. and I th- the, Right, the public sector. I don't know what UPW is thinking, but you and I were talking earlier about the University of Hawaii Professional Assembly, and uh, they're now on record saying they're very upset. They're very confused about this. They simply don't think uh, that this is something that the governor should be doing. Right, and from what I understand with the uh, university faculty union, they have a little bit of a different funding uh, mechanism with the university as opposed to some of these other uh, government unions. Right. So there's the contractual obligations obviously are at the center of trying to figure out what to do. But the governor does have a great uh, sway. He has unilateral authority to do things under an emergency proclamation. Even House Speaker Scott Psyche and Senate President Ron Kochi acknowledge that, even though they too feel that the governor should look elsewhere. But, you know, we are talking about if things are as bad as expected, a 25 percent drop in revenue into the general fund, that, you know, that's, that's $1.5 billion. B is in boy out of a $16 billion budget. Something is going to have to give if, if that comes to uh, fruition. 
Yeah, and I talked to someone who was at that meeting, and they said, well, the, uh, well, the governor's uh, cabinet people didn't really say furloughs, you know, the F word. They did talk about right. a leave without pay, um, right. you know. So it's, yeah, it's a dilemma. Right. The governor, by the way, uh, was asked and said, yes, if there is a pay cut, it would include him. It would include his cabinet. Uh, what else could the governor look to? Well, there is the rainy day fund. It's about yeah, just under $400 million. There is a carryover balance. Often that is the case from the previous year. I think the last I figured checked, that was around $600 million. Uh, you could eliminate vacant positions. That's something that the legislature is always uh, raising a fuss about. Why don't we try and, you know, why are we paying for positions that where there's no warm body in there? So these are other things that the governor uh, could look to do. Right. And I, I know people are dreading uh, the idea of being furloughed, uh, which we mm. experienced, you know, way back when. And that wasn't a pretty picture. Oh, no, you're talking about the Lingle years, particularly, mm-hmm. uh, the, I think it was 2009, her second to last year. And that, uh, in particular, targeted uh, teachers, if I recall. And it lasted a good part uh, of the school year. Remember, there was actually folks that camped out in the governor's office yes. on the fifth floor in protest. We're not there yet, but, you know, Randy Pereira of HGA says, look, why don't you look at maybe just holding off on payments for the health and pension benefits. Maybe that'd be a way to go. Donovan Dela Cruz, chair of the Ways and Means, said, hey, let's look at special funds. Let's eliminate certain tax credits. Let's cut some programs. There are a variety of things to look at rather than just going to uh, state salaries. All right. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. But thanks so much, yes, Chad. Yes, we will. Thanks, Catherine. That was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read the full story by uh, Blaze Lovell and Subhan Lee, head to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. Hal Herzog's son had a pet mouse. When the mouse died... We took him into the backyard, we buried him, and we actually had a little headstone for him. But when his wife found mouse droppings in the kitchen... I went out and I bought a mouse trap. And the next morning I got up and the mouse was dead. This week on Hidden Brain, why we consider one mouse a pet and another a pest. Tonight at 7, following says you. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ko'olau Women's Healthcare, with offices in Kailua and Honolulu providing personalized birthing experiences with nurse midwives. Koolaowomenshealthcare.com Retool, reset. What will be the new normal on the other side of this health crisis as we try and get everyone safely back to work? We reached out to Alan Oshima, former CEO and president of Hawaiian Electric Industries, who just a week ago was tapped by the governor to lead Hawaii's Economic Recovery and Community Resiliency Plan. He tells us his new title is Economic and Community Navigator, and we are all in the canoe together. Before you can actually restart the economy, as the governor has been saying, and, and others in the, in the community have been saying, public health has to be first priority. So you, you can't just flip a switch. And so 
there, there's various groups working on the public health side, including uh, with the DOH, UHERO. Uh, uh, Dr. Mark Mugishi is leading a group uh, in, on that effort, outlining steps to be taken before you can actually reopen uh, safely. Um, and so that's ongoing. Um, there's going to have to be some scenario planning because the dates keep moving depending on the results of, um, you know, the coronavirus infection rates. So that's, that's one aspect. On the other side, you know, the state just got some of the monies um, for the uh, relief funds from Congress, and uh, we have to do some quick forward planning on how to best use those uh, monies to recover from the COVID um, crisis. And there's about 300 or nine, roughly about 900 million that we have to use by December 31. And the County of Honolulu gets about 370 or 380 um, additional. So all of that planning has to be done pretty quickly as well to identify programs that are, are related to the COVID uh, crisis. So as far as uh, getting your committee together, your task force group together mm-hmm. to be able to work out the blueprint. I just want to clarify, there are various task forces going on uh, in the business community, nonprofit community, food community, uh, healthcare community. So these are all with the navigator is to try to collaborate among all of those, make sure that there's no duplication of efforts but not to shut down any of the ongoing efforts um, and maybe just make them focus with information and data on where best to put our efforts uh, in the right priority. So as I mentioned, you know, the $900 million that has to be used by the end of the year, uh, that's one area of focus that we all have to come around. But I think the other part is to get more information out to everyone that Hawaii is getting among all the other states um, getting quite a bit of money uh, in different tranches. So the airports, for example, are going to get separate funding for over $100 million. The bus gets over $100 million. There's some health care. There's nutrition programs that are getting boosts, along with the unemployment. So what we don't want to do is uh, duplicate efforts, uh, and we're trying to figure out who's getting what, How are they going to spend it according to the conditions imposed and then use the 900 million uh, in the best way possible to help programs in need and help the economy uh, recover that's kind of the outline and we will have outreach from the state going into each sector rather than having them trying to reach in for info we're we're organizing um, staff to assign to each sector so that we can have, like, customer service representatives reaching out. As if that task wasn't, you know, already mm-hmm. so difficult, mm-hmm. there's this new development about the governor, you know, is asking for pay cuts. With that overlaid on the task of reopening the economy, I mean, how are you dealing with all that? Yeah, so, you know, I wasn't part of that discussion, but my understanding is that that's just one of the I think just transparency with some of the things that they're thinking about, but I, I don't think anything's been decided, Catherine. There's also information that we keep hearing, and I, I'm sure the governor gets it through the National Governors Association. This may not be the end of all the help that's coming into all the states. Uh, you know, we, we keep hearing about another tr- $2 trillion in, uh, with Nancy Pelosi and Trump maybe at some point reaching agreement on infrastructure. Um, and so... 
the planning right now is without uh, without all that information in hand. And so as we get more clarity, uh, I think everyone, including the governor and others, can make some better decisions as we move on. But I think there are a lot of scenario plannings going on right now because there is no certainty on some of these things. And as far as the non-visitor-related industries, because I know mm-hmm. folks are looking at, at that segment of our economy as you know, a way to be able to jumpstart things sooner than later. But it's kind of uneven, from what I understand, even like the, the construction industry. Uh, you know, we're on Kauai, we're seeing, you know, that they may open it up to, to you know, construction and landscaping, where mm-hmm. I think there's still a lot of the construction stuff happening here on Oahu. Correct, correct. Right, considered essential services. And I think, you know, each on may have to continue to make their decisions. But, you know, as we reopen, the discussions are including things like what is the new norm, right? Even if you reopen certain uh, retail, is it going to be with social distance imposed? Uh, you know, you're already seeing, like at uh, the pharmacy counter, uh, you know, plexiglass shields between you and the pharmacist. I mean, those are all good things. How far will that go into every commercial establishment? And without a foundation of um, trust among all of us about returning to work, right? Many of our workers are now telecommuting. When they're asked to or when they're allowed to come back into the office, are they going to feel certain that the public health aspects have been covered as they return to their desk and sitting next to a person that may not be, you know, always socially distanced. So I think the new norm has to consider all of these things as we open. It's not going to be back to what it was prior to the shutdown. You know, I uh, happened to uh, go through my library and I came across the book, you know, Who Moved My Cheese? Yeah, yeah. And just thinking about the change that everybody is experiencing. Yeah, their cheese has moved and boy, has it changed. Exactly. And Every one of us, I, I think this is a time that we all maybe have to do some introspection, right? And what is our um, accountability to society as a whole? Um, and it may be the greater good of versus individuals, and some compromises have to be uh, worked out. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a change. But for that, other parts, though, I mean, it's going to require for us to really concentrate on things like increased infrastructure, perhaps, into broadband services, so that telecommuting, telemedicine, teleworking, uh, teleshopping can all be accommodated on a real-time basis moving forward. Look at the absence of uh, cars on the roadway. Are we going to become more used to that as we telecommute? And that frees up, that cleans the air, for example. So it's all tied to public policy. So, but then you have impacts on things like our supply of uh, fossil fuels, which we're all trying to get off of, but it it can't be a cliff, right? So um, there's there's a domino effect to everything that we're doing, but it's going to cause us to really look at it hard and close. And that's why our effort from our newly formed office, which, by the way, I just got a deputy, we're still organizing staff and volunteers, is to uh, use this to get everybody's views loaded in so that everyone has a say in what it's going to, what are the concerns, what are the things we have to look at as we reset, because this is a reset. 
You know, I recall when we had the downturn, we had all the stakeholders in the room down there at the legislature, the unions, the private sector, public sector, uh, and it was a fascinating time and good dialogue. And yet we find ourselves, I think, in a more difficult position today. Yeah, this one is monumental because it's not only us, it's not only the U.S., it's worldwide, right? So we, we really have to figure out how do we relate not only within the state, but to outside the state. I think this is a good opportunity for that discussion after we pass some of the stabilization that we need to go through and everybody's basic needs are at least met and people are feeling less stressed, then we have to talk about what's in the future. And you know, with your time with uh, Hawaiian Electric, what are you able to use from that experience as we look forward here? Well, first of all, disruption is everywhere. As you know, Hawaiian Electric faced a lot of disruption from technology, from customer demands, from policy, and it's really how you deal with disruption. But importantly, culture trumps everything. So you have to develop a culture of trust in order to deal with the disruption and to move forward and accept a level of risk as you go forward is not as it was anymore. But making that change, that transformation is key. So now we're dealing with the entire state. I mean, we're dealing with everyone trusting government, trusting business, trusting nonprofits, trusting their neighbors. How do you develop that trusting relationship so that decisions can be made quicker, by the way, than we're used to? With everybody saying, you know, we've, we've got to move, we've got to change. The coronavirus didn't wait for us to have all the protections in place. So we have to be nimble, we have to do forward planning, and we have to accommodate everyone's desires and needs and wants. And as I said, in the end, I don't think everybody will get what they want, but hopefully they get at least what they need to make Hawaii what, what we all envision. But that's a process. It's not going to happen you know, overnight. We have to learn how to pivot, but given that we've got to change, is there any uh, consideration for just kind of the loss of what was normal, you know, because we kind of have to grieve and acknowledge that things are different now. Right. But, you know, I think it takes solace in the fact that it's everyone throughout the world that's going through the same grief. You know, we're not alone. And, um, I mean, I, I, I think that acceptance you know, all these stages of grief, right? So at some point you, you get to the acceptance stage. Um, but we, we do have to acknowledge that that is a process. I agree. I'm, I, I'm not a psychologist or behavioral scientist. I do know that as I, you know, just you and me, Catherine, we're mm-hmm. doing this over the phone, right? And we're so used to seeing each other's faces if you're, if you're talking, and yet we have Zoom meetings and other methods of seeing it through iPads and laptops, but it's, it's not the same, but it is probably the new normal. And so coming to terms with that individually, um, I think, is what everybody's going through. Um, and everybody's going to have a different pace of uh, acceptance. Our job, I think, on, on now in the government side is to make sure that there's some, at least, assurance that basic needs... Um, future needs are being looked at, planned, and in a rational way uh, with all voices around the table. I think one thing that uh, I know our listeners find distressing is that, you know, there's so many conflicting messages out there. In terms of? 
Well, yeah, I mean there are, but I mean there's so much, so much going on, and I, I acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, and even in terms of testing, for example, right? We we hear there's fast testing. Well, the reality is the fast testers um, that I'm familiar with that I've learned in the last few days can only do three tests per hour, and that is fast, right? And others have to be sent away to mainland labs because of. Um, because of lack of supplies or diagnostic services in state, uh, and what does it take to ramp that up? And how realistic is it to get mass testing? Um, and there are other things available like pool testing and uh, contract contact tracing uh, to keep you know public health um, assurance. But all of that data and that kind of acceptance of new ways of doing things has got to be uh, disseminated in a, in a way that people can understand. There's going to be absolutely an element of testing, but then contact tracing that's effective has to be uh, in place as well. So there's, there's a variety of things in public health that they have to do to be able to trace, to know where, where there's uh, infections or rising cases, and then being able to address it quickly. So that's a public health kind of um, environment. But I think uh, as we're doing this, we're going to get better and maybe better tools to do it. Right, There's so also the aspect, Catherine, as you know, of personal privacy. I mean, contact tracing. How far can we go, right, uh, with tracking people, um, et cetera? And how many people are actually going to accept that? As, as these tests become more available and we can get a better handle, we can make better decisions about what we need to do going forward. Yeah, and, and there's, I, I assure you that there's some really good minds in the state and elsewhere who are looking at all of those um, uh, public health options and, and, and models. Uh, and I think in a very short order, it's already being discussed, and um, in very short order, I'd say in the next week or two, there'll be some proposals on what it takes to reopen. The World Health Organization already had criteria on what it takes to reopen. And the things that we're looking at in Hawaii, not myself, but all the public health experts, kind of follow the same test, right? Testing, contact tracing, ability to communicate, uh, social distancing, all of those things really have to remain in place as we move forward until there's, you know, there's a vaccine. That was Alan Oshima, former chief executive officer and president of Hawaiian Electric Industries. He's now been tapped to help with an economic recovery and resiliency plan for our state. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, the next online info session for the Distance EMBA and Master of HR is tomorrow, scheidler.hawaii.edu slash events. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Christine Page, author of The Healing Power of the Sacred Woman. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about illness as a message of the soul. Sunday at 11.
Bentscliff Restaurants. The name is a mashup of the founding brothers' names, Spencer Weaver and Clifton Weaver. It also happens to be the name of the family's summer home in the Hamptons. You're probably familiar with or have fond memories of their restaurants. They included Tiki Tops in Kaneohe, Fisherman's Wharf in Kaka'ako, and Coco's in Waikiki. Just a few of their 50 restaurants and eateries that they operated here in Hawaii. Another favorite was Queen Surf, which was a converted home of the heir to the Fisherman's uh, yeast fortune. However, in 1971, the Waikiki Beach front property was condemned and turned into a public park. Their restaurant empire, though, did succumb to increased rents and high interest rates. The Weavers sold the operation to uh, Nitaku Enterprises Company of Japan in 1986 for $6 million. And Clifton had retired from the business in 1970 after suffering a stroke. He passed away in 1992. Spencer died in 1996 but was inducted into the Hawaii Restaurant Association's Hall of Fame in 2007. And it all started back in 1939 when the Weavers opened six hot dog carts on Oahu under the name swanky frankie that's today's quiz if you have an idea from one please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org Travel bans and quarantines, nothing new for Hawaii Ne. HPR's Ku'uvahiri, she joins us live this morning with a look back at Hawaii history and pandemics. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, this story of disease and death from disease is uh, fairly well known uh, here, about here in, uh, here in Hawaii. But I really wanted to focus on sort of the public health intervention. So things that uh, RLE during the Kingdom of Hawaii, uh, things that they did to try to contain these diseases and save their people. Uh, just with, uh, if we look at the numbers, so there's, there's different estimates of what the population was like when Captain James Cook arrived in 1778, and they vary from around 700,000 people to as many as a, a million people were here in Hawaii before, we call it uh, contact. Uh, but by 1890s, there were about 40,000 uh, Native Hawaiians listed, so that's uh, about 90% population reduction over the course of a century, uh, mostly and in large part due to these infectious diseases that Native Hawaiians lack the immunity uh, against. So when we talk about, you know, how we've been dealing with COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic here in Hawaii for several months now, the Kingdom of Hawaii really dealt with this problem, this ongoing problem for 50 plus years, right, as sort of one novel virus after another began uh, making its way to Hawaii. So those types of situations uh, were dealt with by our ali'i. Ron Williams Jr., a Hawaiian history scholar, gave us the example of Alexander Liholiho, Kamehameha IV. Uh, in the 1850s, he opens up, I think in 1855, opens up the Hawaiian uh, Kingdom legislature saying, the main issue that I want you guys to focus, that I want us to focus on, is death from disease and public health. And uh, he comes up with a proposal and an idea uh, that he thinks uh, we should all move on. He proposes, you know, the, country, the best countries of the world, the most advanced countries of the world have the most advanced technology and the best doctors and so forth. And so he proposes a hospital. There hadn't been, a, you know, a public hospital here before that. And he proposes a public hospital for Native Hawaiians and others that will take care of these problems and will have the best technology and the best doctors and so forth. And the legislature says no. Um, it, by that time, we had switched from a absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy 
So the king wasn't absolutely in charge, and, and the legislature refused to give him the funding for the hospital. Now, he went out himself with his wife, uh, Queen Emma, and gathered funds and got the hospital built. Um, but again, it's one of those issues of um, public health and safety and how serious you know, our government takes it. Right. So as we know, that is uh, the predecessor to what we know now as Queen's Hospital. Uh, the founders, Alexander Liholiho and his uh, queen, uh, Queen Emma, his wife, helped build that hospital without the help of the legislature initially. Uh, later on, things came around. But that idea of having infighting and, and, you know, not really being on the same page, right, legislature and executive is something that uh, we continue to grapple with uh, today. But uh, as Hawaii's ports began to open up to the world, right, missionaries, merchants, whalers, and later plantation laborers, uh, the diseases began to disproportionately um, kill off Native Hawaiians. And uh, Dr. Ben Young, who is the former dean of students over at the UH Medical School and uh, was the physician on board uh, Hokulea's maiden voyage in 1976, uh, he says questions about restricting travel and screening incoming travelers that our leaders are, are faced with today was brought up nearly 200 years ago. So in 1836, uh, Kuhina Nui Kina'u ordered that all ships entering Hawaiian waters uh, would be boarded and inspected for smallpox. So this period of boarding and inspecting all ships was very, very crucial because this was the first public health law passed in Hawaii. The pilot of the harbor was instructed board every ship because they observed that whenever ships came into Honolulu Harbor, diseases escalated. And the orders were that if anyone was on board who was sick, that ship was to be placed in the quarantine, a yellow flag was to be raised, no one was allowed to disembark. Crewmen, passengers, everyone was prohibited from entering the land. It sounds like a very simple idea, but uh, uh, the understanding, Dr. Young had said, the understanding of public health and disease theory and how germs, how diseases are transmitted, those were very uh, new. There was new knowledge to everyone, including the, the Western doctors that were still coming to Hawaii at the time. So just that basic logic of saying, okay, well, I think when these ships come in, diseases come, so let's start there. Interesting. Right, simple idea. We actually have, I got to find the original um, order, which was in uh, the state archives, and we have it up on our website, and it's it's just uh, interesting to see that these same issues came up nearly 200 years ago. Right, so, so if you're scared now, can you imagine what it was like <laughs> way back then when they didn't have all the good science that we have? Exactly, and and I think by the t- by the mid-1800s, similar orders would follow throughout um, kind of the different uh, Kamehameha kings and Lunalilo and Kalakaua later, but things like uh, vital statistic data began to be collected across uh all islands, just to understand how the death rate of these diseases, but also the birth rates. And uh, inter- I believe we did find at least one inter-island travel ban that happened where uh, a disease uh, broke out on Oahu, and then uh, travel from the other islands and or to the other islands was banned in order to contain that. And to my understanding, it did help. Um, and also, uh, and this is something that I learned in, in my research, but uh, the Board of Health 
uh, a board of health was established here in Hawaii in 1851, and that was uh, apparently years before anything similar would come up uh, throughout the rest of the country and here in the United States. So that idea of having to deal with all of the these disease and death by disease and knowing that public health needs to be that, that priority was something uh, that was very prevalent at the time. And in some instances, and I like this story too, uh, Ali'i offered up their own land and resources to aid in containing uh, infectious diseases. So public health scholar Kilha Fox shares the story of Victoria Kamamalu, who in 18... 18- 63 sets up an isolation area on her land in Kaka'ako, uh, known as Ka'akaukukui. So this is kind of where Abjabsum is, the John A. Burns School of Medicine. The same area was Kamamalu's land. And she had set up an isolation area on her land for victims of the smallpo- uh, smallpox epidemic. And I mean, uh, this was for everyone, the very sick, the old, the poor, whoever needed help had a place uh, to be cared for. One thing that is very important right now is that we don't understand really the full picture of the virus biology. We don't understand everything. So uh, I think, you know, sorry, that clip wasn't going to play, but basically uh, when it comes to this uh, spot of land in Kaka'ako, what Fox was saying is uh, that it's a lesson for our leaders today to have that principle of sharing or making sure that everyone involved or impacted by this disease, by this coronavirus uh, pandemic, be uh, cared for. All right. Yeah. Fascinating history. Thank you so much, Kuvehi. Thanks. We have been chatting with Kuvehi Irishi about Hawaii's history with pandemics and what we can learn from the past. That is it for today. Up tomorrow, we get the story behind the American Sign Language interpreters that are getting lots of FaceTime across here in the islands and on the continent. Got questions or comments about anything on today's show? Call our talk back line. Call 808-792-8217. Uh, you can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Listen back to our show, our previous shows on uh, HPR's website. Look for the conversation page under HPR News and Talk Tab. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.